Hello, welcome to the Drinks Business Podcast. I'm Patrick Schmidt and I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to our series, someone who is indeed a rare and important beast, a journalist who's both an expert on wine and climate change. That person is Nick Breeze, a Brit but currently living in Galicia. He has recently returned from Dubai where he attended December's United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP28, which he reported on for our very own green issue, the Drinks Business January edition. And this magazine, with his article in it, can now be read online and in print. Nick has also just published a book called Cop Out, which covers COP conferences over the past decade, focusing on their failures, but also sources of hope. Now, for this podcast, I want to focus on the threats to wine production from climate change. After all, if I were to ask any wine producer what is their greatest long-term concern, I'm sure they'd say climate change. Whether it's erratic weather patterns or a forecasted long-term rise in average temperatures, a changing climate has, is and will have a major impact on harvest yields as well as wine style and quality. It will affect what producers can make, where they can plant and what they should put in the ground. So Nick, thank you very much for joining us. And can I start by asking you, how worried should we be, or rather, how great a threat is climate change to the business of wine? Well, thank you very much for having me, Patrick. It's uh, fantastic to speak to you. I'd say to, to your question, in general, how worried should we be? Well, many people, many scientists are calling this, and in fact, the UN Secretary General is calling this a threat to our civilization. So wine has comfortably tracked our, our civilization from the from its earliest sort of days. So you can kind of see them go hand in hand in that front. And being at the cops over the years, for example, wine has made appearances. I, I first properly noticed, I mean, you notice it at every cops in the evenings around the pavilions when everybody's drinking the wines of the nation state they're going to the parties of. But also... The, um, I remember in Poland, Bordeaux did an interesting tasting where they showed two wines. One was one that if we achieved the Paris Agreement, the wines were uh, more sort of delicate and elegant and things that we might prefer to drink. And one, if we go right past the Paris Agreement, which we're currently doing, how the wines became bigger, unbalanced, bulkier, more alcoholic, and so on and so forth. So you can sort of see that the threat to the to wine is very very real and wine is a sort of tiny section of agriculture in general and there's a great concern that we're on a knife edge with with agriculture because of the disruption to the jet stream the disruption to the hydrological cycle where you know water basically and in fact talking to producers it is water in all its various forms that seems to be a big, big threat. And it's either too much of it, too little of it, um, whether it comes in frozen little bombs that we call hail and destroys whole harvests. And it's this disruption to the hydrological cycle that seems to be the greatest concern. Right, so that's really interesting. So I think perhaps we're all a little bit guilty maybe of focusing on the wrong thing when it comes to looking at wine production because we obsess with temperature, the temperature of harvest, the temperature um, uh, peaks, 
and also of course extremes with 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 frost and and, and other impacts on on the growing season but is it really water that we should be focusing on and 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 why is that such a, a big threat to to style and quality and production in wine well it, I, what i would say is that they're all completely interrelated because you know a drought or increased temperatures that are caused by climate change and um, climate, climate heating these things are all still to do with how much you know water is available to the plant of how much um, moisture there is and so on and yeah I, I think we have to concentrate on all of those things because obviously plants are very sensitive and what you get at the end is dependent on that just this week at Millicene Bio I was tasting with a lady from southern Beaujolais and she showed two wines exactly the, the same really except from one uh, 21 and 22 2022 and in each case the wines tasted completely different one was extremely closed and one was extremely open and it was to do with um, the harvests being one month apart in each year and her father who's been producing wine for 50 years said he's never in all of his time experienced such a um, you know a difference in the harvest dates in a, in a back-to-back years and it's really indicative of the extreme nature that we're seeing now. Um, so I think, yeah, water is a kind of, water is almost like the banker. And this is something that came out at COP28. There was a report released um, that focused just on this. And I mentioned it in the article that you referenced at the beginning. It's called Turning the Tide. And it's from the Global Commission on the Economics of Water. But they're actually saying that we need to start really rethinking water entirely because every single thing that we do as a species, and especially with wine, is to do with water. Water is kind of playing a significant role everywhere. Um, You see it now in the losses of groundwater in terms of northern Italy and places like that. And it's driven by the loss of the snowpack on the Alps or the Dolomites, for example. And what we're seeing is throughout this century, we're going to lose all of the glaciers in the Alps. And that means that the the supply of water that's going into the ground is going to diminish. And once that diminishes, the demand on water will change. And if we quickly switch down just this week again, talking to producers in Alicante, where they've really got very little rainfall and no licenses to use the water. They're dry farming, but they've had a lot of time to adapt to it and so on. So in some respects, they're they're more in touch with, with what's going on. They're very aware because they've been living it. And I think there's a lot of regions that are going to get a shock when the water starts to run dry from the ground. And it's kind of, it's all of these things that we... We're sort of having to expand our awareness and there are a lot of organisations around the world doing some fantastic work in all this. So Nick, what sort of time scale are we looking at? How, how I mean, this threat, we're seeing it at the moment, particularly Catalonia um, from reporting on the drinks business, which is, again is declaring a drought emergency even in, in, in winter time. But but how, how quickly are things changing? Uh, well, in 2023, We saw an unprecedented acceleration of global heating, which caught scientists unaware. Um, It's 
is on the back of the El Nino, which is an ocean warming event which generally drives hotter weather anyway. But this has been quite unprecedented. And it means that we, we did momentarily sort of cross this so-called 1.5 boundary f- for dangerous warming. And we're flirting with that boundary now, many, many generations ahead of when we initially thought we would cross the 1.5 degree boundary. Um, the trouble with doing that is that it triggers all these these things that we're seeing. I mean, as as we're speaking, there are incredible warnings now for Southern California where this atmospheric river is making its way towards the coast. And it's either too much or too little. So in terms of Catalonia, I was talking to someone this week from Catalonia, and they said it is an emergency right now. And if you go down to southern Portugal, again, it's another emergency. They're running out of water. The Algarve is running out of water. The Alentejo is facing really extreme droughts. Follow, And the trouble with the droughts is that the soil bakes hard. And then soon after, because you get a buildup of moisture in the atmosphere, you get these incredibly heavy downpours of rain, which then, instead of falling onto the to the ground and being absorbed, they tend to run off straight away, causing flash flooding events. And we've seen a lot of that over the last few years in agriculture, but also in running into towns and so on and causing complete mayhem. So the, the impacts are devastating for... Um, agriculture, viticulture, and for human property and sometimes life as well in Europe, for example. So it's not about looking at total rainfall quantities and the change there, but it's the way in which it falls. Now, what about um, climate change and and disease, pests, fungal diseases, things like that, um, and their effect on wine production? I remember someone a while ago saying to me that the real issue was the combination of heat and moisture in the atmosphere being a threat for wine production. Well, I think this is not an area that I'm sort of expert on, but it is, I have read, I haven't spoken to anyone directly about this, but I have read that um, pest disease automatically increases with temperature rise because what you're seeing is that the, the, the heat that was traditionally sort of compacted around the equator starts to move northward it moves towards the poles and with that um, pests tend to move much faster than say trees or um, or larger animals so yeah it, we do tend to see invasions of insects and things like that but it's yeah it's it's not an area that I can really speak about in any great detail Something else, Nick, that came out of your article that struck me was the role of habitat destruction in the hydrological cycle, um, but in areas way beyond where that's taking place. So the destruction of rainforests having effects on water cycles in places a long distance from where that's taking place. Could you maybe expound a little bit about how important it is that we don't destroy um, important habitats that that drive this cycle. Yeah, there was a reference particularly to that also came out of this turning the tide report, but has been featured in other um, scientific uh, research papers. The the if you look at places like the Amazon, they sort of 
they provide a lot of moisture, which gets picked up by um, the jets, the jet stream, but there are other jets as well, and, and weather cycles, and transported around. And what we're seeing is that you know, Argentina, for example, is particularly dependent on the um, Amazon for about 40% of its downwind rainfall. China has a massive dependence on Kazakhstan. And you can go around the world and you will see that these weather systems, these sort of hydrological systems in this case, are operating massively across borders. So what's going in it, in, it really brings back this idea of the global commons where, you know, it's, it's very common at the moment. We talk about nationalism and people are almost building borders, but nature is not interested in borders. It really works across them. So the heating ocean, we've got an absolutely incredible Atlantic heat wave going on at the moment. The Atlantic is way above its normal temperatures. It's putting a lot of pressure on ecosystems, ocean ecosystems. It's advancing or accelerating the thawing of the um, or the melting of the Arctic uh, polar ice cap because the um, warm inflows of currents and so on and so forth. And these the the oceans act as a, almost like a conveyor belt, and that warm water is getting pumped down very deep and coming up at the Antarctic ice sheet. Where it's melting the um, the ice around there on the West Antarctica in particular, and you're seeing so we're going to see now the the end or the extinction of um, emperor penguins because of that because of the forming of the ice and this all links back to us burning fossil fuels. It all links back to the water cycle being disrupted, um, the transport of heat and so on and. It shows, it shows you how, you know, when we talk about reducing emissions, these these are really, really, really critical things that we have to do, but we're not doing. Right. So what's standing in the way of us reducing emissions? What's the real threat to that? I suppose, why why has, as you've just been come back from Dubai, why, why is COP failing in its endeavours to reduce emissions? Well, in 1992, we had the Rio Earth Summit, and it was stated there in very, very clear terms that if we didn't uh, reduce our um, carbon emissions across the world, that we would face an existential threat this century. And then every year, so that was over 30 years ago, every year we sort of see a rehash of that speech, and you know, we might memorably recall... Boris Johnson doing a strange one in Glasgow about James Bond and the ticking time bomb or um, David Attenborough speaking at a couple of cops about how really critical all this is. But really, emissions have risen all of that time. And it's, it's the great failure of our political system because the whole system of the cops, which is the, re the reason why they're so important, as a UN sort of framework for tackling climate change is because these, this is how we come together as countries around the world to create a, a sort of a means by which we can make structural changes to our overall society. But since day one, those, um, those processes have been I'd say derailed by the countries producing fossil fuels. 
because they want to keep making money. And in some cases, they haven't come up with alternatives to make money. So you can see the vested interests. But ultimately now, what should have happened in the 90s and should have definitely happened in the first decade of this century has not happened. And we got to Paris and the the Paris Agreement was celebrated because it had this agreement where every country would pledge to reduce their emissions. They, they put out a pledge document saying how they were going to do it. But even then, when those were added up, it still gave us double the amount of warming that scientists said we should have. That sent quite a lot of shockwaves around the world, but then people were sort of like, well, what we need then is ambition to ratchet up our commitments. But then after COP21 in Paris, Trump was elected. He immediately went through the process of withdrawing the United States from the Paris Agreement. So you saw this sort of derailment. Other countries kind of stepped forward. But what I would say really the real problem is that fossil fuel production, every country goes and says, yeah, we're going to reduce our emissions. And the UAE was this is where this really starts to show the COP president of the UAE said we're going to reduce our emissions but we're not going to reduce our fossil fuels what we're going to do is try and develop technologies that don't currently exist and certainly don't exist at the scale needed of you know 30 odd billion tons a year or near 40 ton, billion tons now to um, capture that that emission and then bury it in the ground or do something with it so by continuing to expand the production we are essentially torpedoing all our own safe boundaries for climate change and the, the UAE um, Britain the United States Canada the UAE Saudi Arabia Australia Norway you know China, you can keep going with all these countries that produce fossil fuels. All of them are massively increasing the production, but then at the same time saying they're going to reduce their uh, fossil fuel emissions. And you simply cannot do both those things. It's almost, it's ridiculous. And so right now we're in a very, very dangerous situation. The COP has ultimately been hijacked by the fossil fuel industry because uh, Sultan Al-Jaber, who was the COP president, in the UAE is also the CEO of the um, the uh, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. So, and his stated aim is to ex expand production by about seven billion barrels of, um, oh, yeah, seven billion barrels. So the so if that's not bad enough, it was then announced that COP twenty nine would be in Azerbaijan, and that would be hosted by one of their national oil um, and gas executives also with a stated aim of drastically increasing the production of, uh, of gas, of methane gas. And methane is an is a extremely dangerous um, fossil fuel, which, uh, which has lots of leakage problems before it's burned and turned to CO, CO2. So on the subject of methane, one's image of uh, uh, emissions uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, you know large coal-fired power stations car exhausts etc the classic images but how bad is agriculture for climate change 
Uh, yeah, agriculture accounts for about 30% of emissions, and that includes transportation, which is mostly um, run by fossil fuels. So it's a, it's a big part of it. And that was why one of the interesting things that came out of this recent COP was the Emirates Declaration on Land Use and Agriculture. And this is actually a step in the right direction. I think it's it's not a sort of binding thing so much, but it a hundred and I think around 140 countries or 150 countries signed up to it, and they're really saying that we're going to move in this direction of cleaning up our agriculture. We're going to try to develop more um, sustainable practices, more regenerative practices. Regenerative is a big buzzword in. Uh, wine production especially, but also across agriculture. And it's not just a nice-to-have, it's a it's a must-have because, you know, the soils on the planet contain about twice as much carbon as the atmosphere. So if we don't manage those soils and they all end up dying or the moisture gets evaporated out or they, it eventually turns into dirt, then... It's another, it's another hill for us to climb. And traditional agriculture is kind of accelerating that process because of all the, the chemicals and misuse of, um, misuse of the soil, if you like. So, yeah, the Emirates Declaration on Climate Change was a good effort to try and tackle that 30% of global emissions. And also diets are a big part of that. We, we hear a lot of people talking about vegan diets or eating less meat eating less um fossil fuel <laughs> intensive um food and that's a massive part of this as well and there's one of the um a good example of that i think is jack curtis from carbon jacked in the uk talked about um i think it's rath finney who are starting to use game meats in place of beef because um there's a, such a high carbon uh, cost to eating beef, whereas game meats are, are more, you know, they're, they're part of our natural environment, which also quite often can be eaten more sustainably as a sort of stopgap to a more vegetable or plant-based diet. So ditch the uh, the steak and start eating grouse or, or venison. Yes, indeed. But it's it's also very cultural. I mean, we go on a lot of press trips and you you might be in a country that's serving you a very full-bodied wine and you wouldn't dream, or they wouldn't dream of giving you anything maybe but beef with that wine or a big meat. And yet sometimes I've noticed that the people working there are quite often having a plant-based meal themselves, but they're assuming that that's what you want to drink or what you want to eat. So I think we've got to to try and sort of, as sometimes as communicators and so on and so forth, we've got to try and sort of question it ourselves or be more adventurous with when they say, do you have any dietary requirements? Maybe there's just for fun, try something different. Yeah, I'd be quite interested to have a, uh, maybe a vegetarian option or something like that. What, because, Malbec and mushrooms? Yeah, could be. <laughs> could be. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right, um, Nick. Nick, a last last couple of things on this. Um, the kind of the, the, the protests we're seeing at the moment in in France and Brussels. I mean, 
obviously that's hot news at the moment. I was rather saddened, in fact, to see that that, that the European Union is making a concession on on its on its changes to to rules for for agriculture in in, in Europe on on promoting biodiversity and soil health, but. You know, how much of those is that that level of insurrection a, a result of climate change? I think climate change is is now the number one issue, and we're, we're experiencing such colossal changes to the way we live, to the way we operate, that there's going to be a lot of uh, managing people's responses to it is going to be enormous. It's the social. You know, these are sociological issues, these are societal challenges. Um, we, we tend to think it's all just for the scientists, but it's not, it's, it's for all of us. Um, it's, the, the farmers are worried about their livelihoods, they're worried about changes which they probably don't think are, are really anything to do with them. Um, I think we, we've really now, we've got to try and work to get more information out to support people who are on the rough end of deals and um, rough end of these changes because if we don't transition and it's really the time for transition was a, was two decades ago really now we have to transform at high speed because these changes are accelerating they're exponential so they're accelerating towards us and they're threatening the way we live the way we exist and you know, we don't know now how fast the changes are going to hit where suddenly you see um, collapses in food supply and things like that. Shocks. It's all about shocks. So when you said at the start of this discussion that we're on a knife edge for agriculture, is, is that what you were referring to? Yeah. Uh, the, the food price index is always sitting around a rather dangerous place and... It conflicts tend to tend to increase when we cross the sort of uh, places where food spikes occur in parts of the world, and conflicts act, exacerbate these problems. And we're seeing it now, anyway, with um, where the problems in the Middle East they kind of intersect with all these climate issues because nearby you've got severe water problems, you've got food shortages anyway. And we're trying to get our food through these sort of these narrow straits and all of these problems start to multiply. And then suddenly one day a crop failure failure in one place might be mirrored in another place. There was research done, um, I think it was last year, that showed that when we have these persistent heat waves in places like Central Europe, where we produce a hell of a lot of food, we also get one... You, it's very typical now to get a mirrored or an echoed um, heat wave in, say, Central America, which is their food basket, and one in Asia, which is their food basket. And it's because of the loops in the jet stream, they're getting stuck. And when they get stuck, that's when the problems occurred. And this can lead to multiple breadbasket failure. And when you get that, that's when food prices really spike. But also, the you know, none of us are immune. Eventually, we'll start seeing much more shortages and you know that from that we get turmoil we get social chaos nick thank you um i think we're going to stop there even though it's on a slightly gloomy note or an extremely gloomy note but i think it's important that we paint 
via your expertise a clear picture on quite how bleak things are at the moment. Having said that, um, we are going to have you back for a, a second edition. Um, and this time we're going to focus on the response to the threats you've very clearly outlined. Um, and with that in mind, I hope that our next discussion should at least be imbued with some element of hope. Um, but for now, all I can say is, well, be prepared for even greater challenges and uh, sadly, what seems like irreversible change. Thank you very much indeed, Nick. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to speak to you. Thank you.